This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. It's a deadly time to be a sheriff's deputy in Colorado with three killings since New Year's Eve. The latest occurred Monday in El Paso County. Deputy Micah Flick was shot while investigating a car theft. For some perspective, I'm joined by Yuma County Sheriff Chad Day. He's president of the Sheriff's Association in the state. And Sheriff, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it, Ryan. Uh, first off, can I get your reaction to what happened in El Paso County? You know, the the, uh, the most honest um, the reaction right up off the top is, uh, you know, like like most people, oh, no, not again. Um, it's uh, it's certainly a tragedy, and, and it's felt in, in the same way for law enforcement as as many others um, see it and experience it. We're just we just happen to be a bit closer. Does this string of deaths change anything that you and your deputies do? Um, you know, at the end of the day, probably not. Uh, actually, you know, this is a, this is a profession where um, deputies and officers understand that they're taking they're, they're making a conscious decision to, to 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 leave their families every day to say goodbye knowing that we're in a a profession that is dangerous and where um you know tragedies like this are are, are possible and yet um we we take uh, as many um reasonable actions as we can to make sure that we're well trained to make sure that that we're well equipped and uh, and and so something like this certainly causes us to do what um, what we do on a regular basis anyway, which is, you know, evaluate and reevaluate our tactics, um, evaluate and reevaluate what equipment we have. And, and certainly I, as a sheriff, um, feel some of the heaviness um, that uh, certainly that, that um, Sheriff Spurlock in Douglas County and Sheriff McIntosh in Adams County and now Sheriff Elder um, in El Paso County are feeling um, the the heaviness of being responsible for you know the, the lives of those that are charged with with carrying out the duty that we have so um, I, you know it's a, it's a stark reminder that uh, that there are some important things that we that we need to follow but at the end of the day um, you know we, we continue to go about our jobs and do them in, in as professional a way as we can and, and take the the appropriate steps and accept the risks that come with that unfortunately. Do you think there's any kind of a trend here? Um, you know that I suppose that's uh, that's a reasonable question. But what I'd like to focus on, Ryan, is um, rather than than a discussion about the the possibility of there being a trend in terms of of the level of danger. What I've noticed and what struck me so so um, so importantly in these in these tragedies so recently is the amount of support that law enforcement has from the public. Um, these, they're awful, awful tragedies, but, but it's important. And, and, and if nothing else, the, uh, the law enforcement officers that, that are listening to your, to your program this morning, what I want them to hear is that there were miles and miles and miles of support. Um, people actually coming out of their homes and their businesses to show support and, and sorrow for for the tragedies that happened, um, in, in certainly here locally, and that's uh, it's important to remember that when you know when we hear on national news about you know some protest or, or some people who are blocking an intersection, that by contrast, there's 
miles of support that the, that the community has shown for law enforcement in general and, and certainly for these particular agencies. But um, that's the trend that I think is the most important, that, that there actually is a significant amount of, of support for law enforcement. And it's, uh, it's unfortunate that it takes tragedies like this for us to see it, recognize it, and be able to, um, to, to, to notice and be thankful for it. But um, that is one of the things that, that has been most noticeable to me about these, these recent events. The deputy who lost his life in El Paso County, Micah Flick, had seven-year-old twins. I want to note that you have a wife and I think three daughters, and uh, you're a former deputy yourself in Larimer County. Uh, do these deaths spark conversations at home? Um, you know, I, they they do, um, but they're they're pretty somber. Um, they're they're conversations that that uh, that we that we've had before. You know, just as reminders that this is. You know, there's real danger that we face, and in in the words of of retired Lieutenant Colonel uh, Colonel Dave Grossman, there really are paladins, and our society really truly does uh, have representation from people who intentionally maintain the line between order and chaos, and 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 sometimes there's danger involved in that, and and so certainly. Um, I, I've had those conversations with my own wife and my own my own children. They understand it, and and yet it's uh, it doesn't change you know the sadness that we experience. Um, Sheriff, in, in Sheriff, will you home. will you repeat that quote that you said? I, I it flew by me. Sure, uh, retired Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman says there really are paladins. There really are people who are willing to put their lives on the line for for their communities. They're the best that our society has to offer. And um, my my explanation of that is there really are people who are willing to intentionally put their lives on the line to maintain that, that, that wall, that border, that security between order and chaos. And, and these, these, these last three tragedies just here recently are, are um, tangible, um, uh, shows of that. They're, they're tangible examples of, of the fact that that really, that really does exist in our society today. Well, thank you for being with us. Thank you, Ryan. I appreciate it. Chad Day is sheriff in Yuma County on Colorado's Northeastern Plains. He's president of the County Sheriffs of Colorado. The power to reverse an opioid overdose isn't just for doctors and nurses. The drug naloxone, which can save lives, is fairly easy to administer, so we're seeing it in more and more places. The Denver Public Library carries it. And just the other day, a guest on our show painted this scene from Vancouver. We noticed a group of teenage girls crossing the street, just the the most ordinary-looking high school kids you could imagine, and two of them had naloxone kits dangling from their backpacks. Well, at Colorado State University, students are grappling with this. There was a proposal to supply resident assistants in the dorms with Narcan in case a student they supervised overdosed. 
But the idea has proven controversial, and now there is a search underway for a different answer. From Fort Collins, I'm joined by Isabel Brown, Speaker of the Student Senate. She led this RA proposal. And Kira Ferguson heads a group of students in the dorms. She opposed the plan. And hello to you both. Good morning. Good morning, Ryan. Isabel, what prompted you to introduce this resolution? Uh, Has this issue touched you personally? It has. Uh, This has been an issue that I have faced in my own life with family members and a number of friends who've been affected by drug addiction, uh, particularly with prescription drugs and opioids. And it sort of was by happenstance that I was approached by a nonprofit called Students for Opioid Solutions about if there were any preventative measures happening from a student-led initiative here at Colorado State University. Uh, At the time, there weren't. And I was so excited to be partnering with this organization to try and lead that movement on our campus. Indeed, uh, this group, Students for Opioid Solutions, has chapters in 33 states. So what is happening on the CSU campus uh, is a debate perhaps being replicated on campuses uh, nationwide. Uh, I want to say there have been no opioid overdoses on the CSU campus, at least in the last five years. But statewide, 67 young people, uh, so folks 24 and under, died of an opioid overdose in 2016. So what is it you'd hope that RAs would be able to do versus like what they're equipped to do now? So our hope initially was to be able to empower resident assistants to respond to this uh, incident were it to happen on an individual floor in our residence halls immediately. Uh, under the current status quo, what happens is a resident assistant is instructed to call the Colorado State University Police Department, who is fully equipped to uh, handle and administer Narcan. Uh, but essentially, what we were hoping to do is sort of cut out that middleman and, and empower the individual RA to respond to that situation immediately. And just to be clear, an RA is a fellow student, but usually an upperclassman, right? Um, who has, yes, that has, is correct. <laughs> has some authority in the dorm. Yes. Uh, ultimately, the idea would have required approval of the CSU administration. Uh, we spoke to the director of health services on campus, Anne Hudgens, Uh, And she said supplying RAs with naloxone is unnecessary. This is her view. The trained first responders can be there so fast that I don't think it makes sense to put the RAs in that kind of a position. I think by the time they called for emergency help that the police who are trained first responders could be there as quickly as the RA could be there. Something you reflected uh, yourself, Isabel, um, and those officers indeed carry Narcan, Naloxone. Uh, Kira, this passed overwhelmingly in the student senate, this proposal, uh, but got nixed by the Residence Hall Association, which you're in charge of. What were your concerns about equipping RAs with uh, this drug? So the Residence Halls Association was primarily concerned uh, that RAs um, that they spoke to can't currently address problems in regards to alcohol poisoning, among other issues. And so there was a concern that even though they can't deal with those issues, they may um, not be prepared with their past experience to handle uh, dealing with an opioid overdose. Why do you compare it to, say, alcohol poisoning? Is that something that happens in the dorms, I I gather? Yeah, I mean, it is that stereotypical idea that um, students in college will drink, and that does fuel a lot of uh, particularly freshmen to seek out that option. So it is something that the RAs are trained to uh, 
prepare for, to deal with, and to call CSUPD in the event that they uh, come across it. Okay. Uh, They're trained to call the police. They're not trained to deal with the effects of alcohol poisoning themselves. And so you're saying that uh, it would have been a bit uneven. They might have been trained to deal with one emergency, but not necessarily another. Is that what I hear you saying? Yeah, especially in the case that they'll more likely see an alcohol poisoning and not a opioid overdose. They would be more trained to see the overdose and they'd less likely to be seeing it. Uh, but there might have been training associated with this, Isabel. Was was that the idea you had in mind? Yeah, indeed. When we first presented the legislation to the Residence Hall Association, uh, we received overwhelming positive feedback about training resident assistants and really just the employees of residence life in general about what the signs and symptoms symptoms, excuse me, of an opioid overdose look like. Uh, you know, you read tons of horror stories throughout the entire country of individuals who maybe mistake an opioid overdose for another health issue, and unfortunately, that leads to a lot of unnecessary deaths of young individuals across our country. Uh, So ultimately, what we hope to continue working with the Residence Hall Association to implement is a training program in recognizing those signs. That's right. So you're working on a compromise because the RA idea specifically ran into some trouble. What what is the path forward? What kind of training would you like to see RAs get, uh, Isabel? Absolutely. Uh, I just want to say that ASCSU is so looking forward to working with the Residence Hall Association in any capacity in coming up with the proper first step to prevent opioid overdoses on our campus. Uh, And we're willing to have any sort of discussion in terms of what residence life or any individual on this campus might be comfortable with. This is the student student association, I'll say. Yes. uh, And we are looking into a number of options in terms of what that training might look like. We met with the health network yesterday uh, here with student government, and they informed us of a very interesting training module that's run through the same producers of a program called Alcohol EDU, which all individuals who live in the residence halls are asked to take uh, and undergo when they move into the residence halls. But there's a brand new module that was just introduced related to prescription drug use and abuse. Uh, So maybe that's the right step forward, but we'll continue to have those conversations with the Health Network and Residence Life and the CSU administration. Kara, what do you think of more training and are there other options on the table? I'm definitely in support of more training. Uh, It can never be a bad thing to be prepared for those situations. Um, And the um, training that's provided to the residents um, that come into the halls in their first year uh, with the alcohol training. Uh, Seeing that expanded is definitely going to be an amazing uh, addition to their experience. Um, So so is it possible that students who want to carry Narcan and Naloxone uh, could like pick it up from student health or something like that and, and be the ones to administer it if they so choose? Is that something that you're considering on campus at CSU, Isabel? Indeed. Uh, We actually spoke with the pharmacy over at the CSU Health Center yesterday afternoon, and they are currently in the works of finalizing a written standing order uh, for Narcan over-the-counter over at the pharmacy. So if any student wishes to go pick up a dose for themselves, that would be an option within the next few weeks. Uh, From student government side of things, we are actually hoping to look into subsidizing the cost of at least a few of those units to make it more financially accessible to students. And with the idea that those students might be in various places throughout campus, maybe not just in the residence halls. Yes, absolutely. All right. Well, thanks for walking us through this as you debate how to deal with the opioid crisis on the CSU campus. We appreciate your time. 
Thank you so much for having us. Thank you. So you heard there from Isabel Brown. She's a junior and speaker of the Student Senate at Colorado State University. Kira Ferguson is also a junior at CSU and leads the Residence Hall Association. We talked about how best to administer naloxone on campus. That's the drug that can reverse an opioid overdose. Okay, that's the picture from CSU. Now our health reporter, John Daly, has the story of the role police can play in preventing overdose deaths. A couple of weeks ago, police officer Grant Yaunt and his partner got called out on a medical assist. A man in a car, doors locked, not breathing, having a seizure. And we could see the gentleman in the driver's seat of his car. His head was tilted back. He was foaming from his nose and his mouth. The officers took the call in the town of Evans, south of Greeley. Uh, my partner broke the window. We got in the car. You could see there were, there were in, indicators of drug use, meth pipes and methamphetamine in the car. There were needles in the car, too, a sign of heroin use. Based on their experience, the man was overdosing. Once, they would have waited for EMTs to save him. But Evans police officers now carry doses of the overdose reversal drug naloxone, also known as Narcan. Officer Yaunt pulled one out of his pocket and sprayed the fast-acting antidote up the man's nose. I thank God we had Narcan that day, and, and that, that contributed to saving his life. Officer Yaunt's story is becoming more common thanks to a program called Naloxone for Life. It aims to get the reversal drug into the hands of police statewide. Since it was launched two years ago, officers have saved 320 people from an overdose death. It all starts with training. We had five overdose deaths related to heroin in Evans alone. At the Evans Public Library, Chief Rick Brandt hands out boxes of Narcan to officers from small police agencies, the Weld County Sheriff's Department, and state parks. So Garden City, six kits. Brandt has been in law enforcement for 37 years. He now helps lead a program he never could have imagined when he first started. Not even on my radar. Not at all. Yeah, it's amazing how things have changed. Brandt says police are on the front lines. We have not seen this sort of uh, catastrophic death rate, you know, that we're experiencing in this country. When, when drug overdose deaths are, are uh, surpassing motor vehicle deaths every year, that's pretty significant. We're, we have a problem. But Brandt says officers armed with naloxone are key to turning the tide. They've distributed 7,500 kits to officers statewide, but it's not cheap. Each kit costs $75. The Colorado Attorney General's office spent half a million dollars on Narcan kits, using money from legal settlements with pharmaceutical companies. It's essentially the closest thing to a magical drug that's ever been invented. That's Josh Bloom. He's a doctor at Denver Health who's been collaborating with Chief Brandt. It can't be abused. It's a very clean drug. It has minimal side effects. All it does is reverse an opioid overdose. Bloom says the opioid crisis has been so daunting, it's forced community leaders to work together in unprecedented ways. This is the first time, to my knowledge, that the medical community really has to partner with law enforcement. We're making these partnerships and forging these relationships we never, ever had. You know, we lived in our world, they lived in theirs. The third member of this training trio is Lisa Rayville, who heads the Harm Reduction Action Center. That's a Denver group that provides services to people who use drugs. She says the increased use of naloxone can give people who overdose another chance. Dead drug users do not have the opportunity for recovery. We know we're in the midst of an overdose epidemic. We know we can do better. We know naloxone gets us there. Not everyone sees it that way. Evans Police Chief Rick Brandt says he knows some in law enforcement who balk at trying to save people they call drug addicts. But he says first responders are there to help. That's why I told my officers, don't judge. 
save the life, and then you can judge later. But our job is to save human life. The head of the state's police chiefs association, Dwayne Oaks, says there's been very little resistance. Oaks is the chief in Alamosa and says police have saved eight lives in the San Luis Valley since the project started. I don't see any downsides to it. His department even keeps Narcan around the office in case an officer in the field or a technician in the evidence room gets an accidental exposure. I see it as a great tool to have. It's very easy to use and and very effective. Evans Police Chief Rick Brandt says his department has used Narcan to reverse overdoses half a dozen times in the last couple of years. That's in a town of 21,000. This is the new normal. Brandt says it's a simple testament to the magnitude of the problem. I'm John Daly, CPR News. She's been on a Wheaties box, Colorado Springs threw a parade for her. Figure skater Peggy Fleming twirled and leapt her way into Americans' hearts. In 1968, she took home the only U.S. gold from the Winter Olympics in Grenoble, France. This is from a competition a few years prior at the old Broadmoor Arena in Colorado Springs. I think in the Peggy Fleming style... Is one of the most beautiful in this competition, and she's got great athletic ability along with it. Watch this, a double flip jump. Now watch the arm. And here comes a, a very difficult jump for a girl, a double axle, two and a half revolution. Here it is. And that was a beauty of a jump. That was, that was wonderful. Nailing the double axle, if you couldn't make that out. Ahead of the Winter Games in South Korea, I am joined by Peggy Fleming Jenkins to talk about how figure skating has changed. She lives in Denver, and welcome to the program. Oh, thank you, Ryan. Nice to be here. I love it that we moved here uh, last year. Yeah. And um, back this in is Colorado. Where, yes, back back to Colorado. My husband and I went to Colorado College, and of course, I trained at the Broadmoor um, leading up to the Olympics, and. Um, you know, a lot happened here. <laughs> yes, you, you've come full circle in I some have. regards. Uh, you competed internationally as a teenager, including at the 64 Olympics in Austria, where you took sixth. Uh, I want to note that you didn't come from a wealthy background. At one point, I think your family lived at a campground, and yet you excelled in a sport that can be very expensive. I think uh, classism in figure skating is top of mind now with this movie I, Tanya about uh, Tanya Harding. Uh, how, how did you start skating? And did you feel in the beginning like y- you had a place in it? Well, I think, um, you know, I started skating when I was nine years old. I was uh, kind of a tomboy growing up. I loved sports, but I also, um, I played the violin I took dance class. So by the time... You were the overscheduled child we hear (laughs) about now. But I think um, our parents really exposed us to a lot of different things. And I think that we have done that with our own children is expose them to all different kinds of sports, music, and the arts. Um, And I think by the time they introduced me to skating at nine years old, I was coordinated. I had a feeling of of a, a lot of different things. And I stepped on the ice, and it was like magic. It was like I could, you know, move fast very easily. Um, I was coordinated enough, and um, I'd go back every every day, and I'd get better. So I think that just clicks with a kid if if it's easy and you enjoy it, and you see progress. Oh yeah, and you get progress right away. Um, you're going to stick with that sport. So. Um, 
That's did, what I did. I got a little carried away, though. A little carried away. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's how you sum up your career, essentially. Yeah, I got a little skating. carried away. Uh, was it, did it feel classist? Did it feel like you were sort of the odd girl or woman out? Mm-mm, no. no. Okay. Not, a, not at all. I mean, I just felt like I loved skating. I, I just loved how it felt when you moved across the ice. It, it's athletic, but it's also beautiful mm. and graceful. And that's what I wanted to be. But you wanted to do it competitively, eventually, mm-hmm. uh, not just do it for right. the pure art. How right. did that come about? Well, I think that's just the next step that you do when you start in a sport like figure skating. You test yourself and in competitions. And actually, my very first competition, I won. And I thought, wow, this is easy. I'm going to stay with this. <laughs> and then two weeks later, it was the Pacific Coast uh, Regional Championship, and I came in last. So I had the thrill of victory and the agony of defeat in my first two competitions. (laughs) So I think that set the stage for me of like, okay, if I'm going to do this, I I should apply myself and really, you know, focus on on the competition and and try my best. Your mother made your skating outfits. Mm -hmm. Yeah. She taught herself how to sew and... um, you know, we couldn't afford to have people make the costumes, so she made them herself. And, Including uh, the one you wore job. when you got gold mm-hmm. in 68. Correct. She uh, chose the color chartreuse green, very unusual color. And I guess it's kind of a 60s color, but we were in the 60s. <laughs> <laughs> but it was a, a striking color. No one had ever used that before. I also think it reflected where you were in France, right? right. Chartreuse. My, my mom did some research about the town of Grenoble, and she found out that they made a um, the monks made a uh, a liqueur called Chartreuse uh, up in the mountains of of Grenoble. And she thought, well, if I wore that color, it would endear me to the French people, <laughs> and maybe the judges, Who and knows? maybe the judges. I don't know, but I don't think they got that part. Mm-hmm. I see. A little too subtle. Yeah, a little too subtle. In that case. I watched a documentary about you and specifically about your performance in 68. And you said something about how you you didn't feel totally in your body in that moment. Well, I think I had so much pressure on me because I went into that Olympics as twice world champion. So everyone's out to beat me. Mm -hmm. And my philosophy with competing was like, to compete against myself. I wanted to be better than I was last year. So I, you know, kept improving. And I think at the Olympics in Grenoble, I felt such pressure to to do my best, and I didn't want anything to go wrong. I was ahead in the school figures before I even went to the free skating, so I was 89 points ahead of the second girl. Let me just interject. School figures is actually where the term figure skating comes from. Mm -hmm. And at the height of your career, it was a little less freestyle. You had to execute these school figures. Right, and it took three days to to do them uh, in competition because there were so many skaters. And um, they were worth 60% of your score. Oh, my goodness. And 40% was your free skate. So over the years, you know, um, the the um, rules in skating have changed. And, you know, the sport is getting better and better and improving and getting more difficult as well. More difficult? Mm-hmm. Why? Well, I think the jumps are becoming such a a focus 
in figure skating right now. And I think um, we're a little off balance. I think they focus so much on triples and quads that, you know, they don't have time to really, you know, be graceful and artistic and interpret the music. So that's what our sport is about, is that balance of artistry and athletic ability. Do you think that audiences are just addicted to the acrobatics in a way? They are, but I don't think they like to see people fall all the time. <laughs> and, you know, and now the the scoring system is so different. Um, you know, for an audience member, they, they watch somebody fall on, you know, a triple jump. And they they think, well, they shouldn't get credit for that, but they do. If you've completed the revolutions in the air and you fall, you still get some points for completing the revolution. And, you know, I think the audience, I, I don't know, it just breaks up the performance when they fall. Mm. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner and ahead of the Winter Games in South Korea. We're getting the long view on figure skating from Peggy Fleming Jenkins, who uh, is in Denver and who has a long history in Colorado. So you you met your husband uh, in Colorado Springs. He he, he skated as well. Yes, for a few years. And um, you both skate together now. uh, We do a little bit just with our grandkids and at parties or something. But um, you know, he he was in pre-med at uh, Colorado College. So his skating career kind of had to dwindle down because he didn't have the time to devote to both things. So his medical career was more important. And um, But we, we met um, actually at the Broadmoor World Arena. Um, that's where he asked me out on my f- our first date. So, <laughs> you know, I, a lot happened um, to me uh, both athletically and personally in that building. Uh, Speaking of judging, there have been scandals around judging in figure skating. There was an alleged vote trading scheme at the 2002 Olympics in Salt Lake City. Uh, In 2014, questions were raised about whether favoritism skewed the results to the benefit of a Russian Mm -hmm. skater. Mm -hmm. Uh, There have been reforms since then. Uh, How do you feel judging has affected the popularity of this sport? Well, I think it's it's awfully difficult for audiences to understand the scoring system. Huh. I mean, people are used to like watching Dancing with the Stars, the perfect 10. Every, you can relate to that. And skating uh, back in the 60s when I was um, competing, it was the perfect 6.0. And that's what you strive for. And now it's just... And, and, and people got that score. Yeah. and And now it's just like... A bunch of numbers. Everything so ends in a nine. Now. Yeah, everybody should be having a, a notepad and and be able to write down you know points that they get for every little thing that they do in the program. Um, but I think the audience really wants to see the big picture of of what a, a performer in competitive skating is doing. You spent many years as a TV commentator, mm-hmm. and uh, you were in the announcers booth in '91 when Tanya Harding became the first American woman to land a triple axle in competition. Well, she's written a little history, and she still has three minutes left in this routine. Tanya Harding. She looks thrilled. This is where she's really improved in her skating, is holding out her moves and really feeling the music. I really see a big growth in her skating in that territory. Taking her time. Mm Mm-hmm. She's obviously back in the news, the zeitgeist. What do you remember about that day? 
Well, it was um, a little bit uh, frightening because we didn't, at that time, we didn't really know what was happening. We were in downtown Detroit. So that has a reputation of being a very tough city. And we thought, well, you know, it's just how it is here. And they hired bodyguards for all of us. And, you know, it was, um, it, it turned into a news story more than a, a skating competition uh, back then. You're talking not about the triple axel, but about no, the attack. About the attack. Ah, yeah. That's, it's funny. I asked you yeah. about the triple axel, and what you recall <laughs> is the attack. Yeah, yeah. But, uh-huh. um, you know, she did land the triple axel. It was stunning. It was the first time a U.S. Uh, woman had had landed it. Um, I think Midori Ito of Japan had done that before. Um, it's a very difficult jump mm. uh, because of that forward takeoff and and the double axles. That's the most difficult jump in skating is that forward takeoff. When you were in the booth, you were often paired with the acclaimed announcer Dick Button, Dick and, Button. and skater, of course. Right, and we worked together for twenty eight years. You know, he <laughs> has said that un- unlike himself. You weren't openly critical of the skaters. Mm-hmm. Well, I wanted to, uh, when I spoke, I wanted to think before I, I really said something. And I didn't want to be too critical of them. I mean, they know when they make mistakes and the audience knows when you make a mistake. But I think if they learn from it and and think of something positive to say about their performances um, is, you know, a good balance um, Dick got to be the bad cop. He, he did. He did. But we thought of the same things. And he said, why didn't you say it? I said, well, I want to think about how to say it nicer. <laughs> uh, with the recent news about the sexual assault of young women on the Olympic teams, uh, which has apparently gone yeah, on for years, terrible. is widespread. I want to ask if, if that was a problem when you were competing or an awareness you had. Oh, we had no awareness of, of that. Um but I think, um, you know, that's why my mother was very protective of me, and she oversaw my career, and she would be there at every practice to, you know, see what that relationship was like with the coach and me. And actually, she was sitting there to make sure she got her money's worth, I guess, okay. <laughs> and um, that I wasn't goofing off or I was really focused because money was tight for us. So when I was on the ice taking a lesson, I mean, I really needed to pay attention because I didn't, we couldn't afford that many lessons. Hmm. Um, so she was there monitoring. And I think every parent should should be there with their child when they're practicing and, and really understand, you know, that relationship. Um, and yet with, that's not always possible, I suppose. No, but in skating, it, it definitely is. Um, my mom made the time to do that. And um, she was very protective. And she was also um, watching if, you know, um, if I was taking from a coach that I'd sort of plateaued at learning something new or progressing. And she would always go, well, maybe it's time for a change and go to some coach that, you know, um, had a talent in in something that I needed to to improve in. And um, I think that was important to keep progressing to the next level. Just briefly, your one... Um uh, your win, that is, 50 years ago, inspired many young women. Mm-hmm. What would you tell little girls now on the ice? Well, I think it's a wonderful sport. Um, it's graceful, it's athletic, and and very creative. Um, but I think the sport really makes you grow up a little bit faster because you, mm. you're put through a lot of stress um, at an early age. But those are good tools 
that you can use the rest of your life. It's it's good training habits. It's consistency. It's um, you know the the work that you put in it um, really shows. And you can't cheat. <laughs> you can't cheat. So if you cheat, you 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 know you can't do the um, different moves like you want to. Thank you for being with us. Oh, you're welcome. Figure skater Peggy Fleming Jenkins of Denver. Fifty years ago, she was the only American to take home gold from the 68 Winter Olympics. And we'll post a video of her performance there and photos at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters. Early in his theater career, Chris Coleman encountered a tough critic, his mom. While he didn't always welcome her feedback, Coleman says it had a big effect on his work. And three decades after founding his own theater company, Coleman has made a big move to Colorado. He's the new artistic director at the Denver Center for the Performing Arts Theater Company, a multi-million dollar a year operation and part of the largest nonprofit theater organization in the country. And Chris joins us by phone. Welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me, Ryan. I'm curious about your mom's influence on you at a young age. Uh, she'd studied theater and worked on stage. What what kinds of things did she critique you on back then? Oh, my gosh, you're hilarious um, for starting there. Um, well, we, she started a program in our church, actually. This was, you know, in the 70s. And um, I thought everybody had a, a drama program in their church, but, it, you know, it was pretty unusual. And I remember one one year I was um, asked to create the entertainment for the Valentine's program. Okay. And everybody, it was a huge hit, and everybody thought it was great. And on the way home in the car, my mom said, well, what did you think? I said, oh, you know, I thought it went pretty well. And she goes, well, here are the four things that I think you could have done better. <laughs> and I was so pissed off at her because, like, I'm like 12 or something, you know. I'm like, who, who, you should be happy that I, you know, am, am doing something productive. But what was awesome about that was that it always pushed me, and and it taught me to to try to reach above what I thought I could accomplish. So it was a, it was a great uh, coaching from a young age. I love that we're near the anniversary of that with Valentine's Day just around the corner. There you go. So there you go. You come from a smaller company in Oregon called Portland Center Stage. Um, yeah. I'll say that your predecessor at the Denver Center left some pretty big shoes to fill. Kent Thompson spent 12 seasons at the helm. Mm -hmm. He really pushed for new plays and more diverse stories and voices. Mm -hmm. I think I think of the recent premiere of American Mariachi as, as reflective of that. Yep. What, what are your priorities going into this job? Well, I think that the ground that Kent um, laid... Uh, is one of the things that made the company really compelling to me and to many folks around the, the country. Um, it's always been, the Denver Center has always been a company that those of us in the theater field have looked to, you know, as as a company able to do big work, work of scale and and beautiful classics. Um, but really the, the Colorado New Play Summit and, and the development of new work, new voices has been the thing that has gotten most practitioners um, interest over the last decade or so. And and so that is definitely a, a, a passion of mine and something that we will continue. Um, finding ways to bring um, diverse voices into the theater to create relationships with new communities that maybe haven't traditionally felt welcomed or felt uh, that they've seen themselves on stage. Like who, then, who, who would be in that number? Oh, well, 
uh, you know, in, in Portland, that for us, it's been the the, the African American community and the Latino community uh, in particular. I think the Amer- American Mariachi. You know, one of the great things that uh, we're hearing from talkbacks is audience members' deep appreciation, especially from the Latino community, of seeing their their stories on stage. That is so deeply emotionally impactful. And um, so that work has been a part of my career for a long time, and it will absolutely be a part of my work here at the Denver Center. Now, isn't the development of new material risky? Uh, In other words, there's always safety in mounting the known quantities. Well, there's never safety in mounting a play. I don't think there's no, there's always a risk factor because just as soon as you think you know what the audience is going to do, they they will surprise you. You can think, you know, we're going to do Our Town, it's a sure bet, <laughs> and then they don't show up. Um, so there's always risk involved. Yes, there is more risk uh, when you are working on a title that nobody's familiar with. And, and so one of the glorious things about this organization is that it has a really strong financial platform so that you can take some of those risks, you can lean forward and try something new, brings a new voice to the community, and you're not risking the health of the whole institution. And that ideally is the position that, that you want to be in and that Honestly, all of the leaders, the real, um, you know, top five or six regional theaters in the country, that's the position that they're in. It allows them to kind of lean forward and say yes to the most interesting work that's out there. I want to say that the 13th annual Colorado New Play Summit runs uh, later this month. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner. And uh, my guest is Chris Coleman, who is newly at the helm of the Denver Center for the Performing Arts Theater Company. And I want to note that when your predecessor left last year, it caused a stir. One trustee reportedly left because he was upset over the departure. Mm -hmm. Before that, the Denver Center hired two CEOs in under two years. Uh, Did you have any misgivings about that turnover before you joined the organization? I had a lot of questions, you know, um, because we we all read the news and it was a it was um, it was an unusual divorce, um, if you will. And, and so it did get attention nationally. Um, and it was, that was the first question that I asked the recruiter when he reached out to me last August. And in fact, um, you know, he offered to put me on the phone with Janice Senden, who is the current CEO. And that was the first conversation we had, you know, what, what's the story, what's the intent and, and, um, you know, what does the future look like for the organization? And, I had a really just a kind of an instant connection to Janice and the way she thinks and her transparency around the whole story. And I feel like I've come into the organization at a really good moment um, where where we're getting to kind of reinvent some things to make sure that the organization is relevant and vibrant for a long time to come. And speaking of reinvention, you're doing that with some of the spaces at the Denver Center. So two of the smaller venues will be renovated later this year, the Ricketson and the Stage Theaters. Yeah. That's in concert with uh, the passage in November of a bond worth $19 million for these projects. Yeah. Uh, what what makes these types of upgrades necessary in the world of theater right now? I'm, I'm curious how space reflects, like... Um, the progress in the theater or innovation? Well, sometimes it's totally prose. You know, sometimes it, it's just a, a completely pedestrian need. And, and both of those spaces have not, um, they neither have been renovated for 40 years. So oh. you, you can imagine that there are some things that need to be upgraded. Specifically, um, there are some 
things that need to be brought up to code um, because the laws have changed in the last 40 years. And and then there it gives us an opportunity to really look at what is the audience experience in those rooms? How do we how do we improve them? Can we improve the um, the acoustics? Can we provide better leg room in some of the rows? Can we improve the sight lines? Um, can we make better use of the backstage and the storage areas underneath um, and, and increase you know, the safety of the spaces? So some of it's deeply unsexy, uh-huh. and, 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 and some of it will be um, aesthetic improvements. But, and then we do get the opportunity to just kind of think about the, the audience experience and how we can make that um, better. I was hoping for some answer about multimedia and holograms or something like that, but that's not necessarily the case. You could keep hoping about that. Okay. Um, You know, the company has, uh, you know, pretty great um, equipment in terms of multimedia and stuff like that. So there's not a lot that we can't say yes to on that front. Um, So the renovations are really... um, really more, uh, a little more pedestrian. Yeah. So Chris, I want to ask about the responsibility, if any, you feel to the larger theater community. Um, We spoke with Teresa Eyring. She's executive director of the Theater Communications Group. It's a national advocate for nonprofit theaters in America. And she says the Denver Center has a responsibility to support the greater theater scene in Colorado. There's always a danger and more and more funders and community members are paying attention to ensuring that the larger institutions are not pulling all of the resources at the expense of some of the mid-size and smaller organizations. Sort of gulping up audience. What what responsibility, if any, do you feel to the broader community in Colorado? I think you definitely have one. I mean, I, I think an organization like this, and that she's right, that, that exists in every community. And, you know, fortunately, my journey... Uh, you know, I began as a tiny, tiny organization in Atlanta when I started my theater company. I think our budget the first season was $30,000. And so I was one of the little guys for the first 12 years of my career, really kind of trying to find resources in the community. So I appreciate that position. And then, you know, in Portland, I've been the bigger, big guy, and then now it's going to be the bigger guy. And, you know, I think an organization like this is is founded, created, to try to bring a lot of people in the region into contact with the art form. And I think it's done it miraculously well over the um, 40 years of its history. I think the, the question is, how do we use our resources and our position and our voice to really make the ecology, the arts ecology, as healthy and dynamic and interesting as possible? And that has certainly been something that has been important to me in Portland um, on a couple of levels. I mean, one, just we hired we we hire a bunch of local artists. So about fifty percent of the actors in a given season in Portland will be from that city, and that. Do you intend to do a, that in Denver? Well, I I certainly hope so. Um, I, I don't know, I haven't been to a general audition here yet, so I haven't met people. Okay. But I think it's it's a smart investment, um, and and then I've also been very involved in you know the passage of. Uh, an arts tax in Portland that benefited the whole, um, all of the nonprofit arts organizations. And it would have been super easy for me just to spend all of that time trying to raise money for my own organization. But I felt like I'm a citizen of the city. I live here. I want it to improve. I want it to be really dynamic and a place that people continue to want to move to. Um, and so if I can contribute in making the whole ecology healthier and more interesting, 
why not do that? So I absolutely agree with Teresa's sentiment and, and look forward to getting to know the other arts leaders here and figure out how I can help. And of course, there is uh, the SCFD in the metro region, yeah, the Scientific yeah. and Cultural Facilities District. That's Chris Coleman. He's the new artistic director at the Denver Center for the Performing Arts Theater Company. should say that the current season runs through June 24th. All right, I learned what a paladin is in this show. Maybe you joined me for that ride. I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.